Welcome back to another episode of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. I'm your producer, Jack Bryan. Last week, Mattis and the Kerry investigation found a lot of drug money going into the Contra funds. Now, in the summer of 1986, this information has given fresh life to Mattis's investigation, which is also working with Jack Terrell, a mercenary who is running Contra operations in Honduras before becoming a whistleblower. Terrell is feeding Mattis and the Kerry investigation information from within the intelligence community about the secret war being conducted in Nicaragua by an entity known as the Enterprise, a CIA-backed organization which can do covert operations behind the back of Congress. The organization was devised by CIA Director William Casey. It's largely executed by National Security Council staffer Oliver North, and is using retired General Richard Secord to operate a private company as a front. This is the organization that is resupplying the Contras illegally on behalf of the Reagan White House. Now, I'd like to hand you off to my fellow producer and our host, John Cryer. Thanks, Jack. I am John Cryer, and this is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So now that the Kerry investigation has collected a massive trove of evidence, they tried to start an official Senate investigation and hearings. This would give them more funding, a public platform, and perhaps most importantly, subpoena power. This is a member of John Kerry's staff, Jonathan Weiner. So we tried to get a full investigation going. The senator from Indiana, who was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee at the time, Dick Luger, was skeptical but felt an obligation to try and let us move forward. He had a counsel who was secretly working with Ollie and would tell Ollie North every single thing we were doing as soon as we did it. Uh, North got us investigated for allegedly bribing witnesses to get them to make up stuff about him, which, of course, we didn't do. One day at the gym, a guy comes up to me, an assistant U.S. attorney, courageous guy named David Lee Want, and he says, well, Mr. Mattis, your name is coming up. And I'm like, how? Bad cocktail jokes? And he said, no, I was called into a meeting of the U.S. attorney. I'm like, oh, him again. And he says, your name came up regarding Costa Rica and the neutrality investigation. And I was there to explain to the U.S. attorney what the Neutrality Act stands for. This U.S. attorney, Leon Kellner, is the top federal prosecutor in all of Southern Florida. Kellner is the guy who tried to question Mattis' drug-running informant last week. He's overseeing an investigation being conducted by Jeff Feldman, the other prosecutor who's been a thorn in Mattis' side. Feldman was the prosecutor in Mattis' first case with the machine gun. So these prosecutors, Kellner and Feldman, have an investigation that is ostensibly looking into the same crimes that Mattis and the Kerry investigation are looking into. But so far, these prosecutors have really only seemed interested in threatening Mattis and his whistleblowers. Now, a lawyer Mattis knows from the courthouse tells him that he was in a meeting with Kellner and Feldman regarding the case and that Mattis's name came up. So he says to me, not only did your name come up, he got a call while I was there from Washington, and I heard it exactly that he was told to go slow. Now, you can't spell out a cover-up in any more direct terms than to go slow. And to me, all of the things that had happened, Garcia's sentencing postponed, 
the attempt to kidnap and kill me, the witnesses disappearing, and the FBI wanting to report to Washington on me. All of that indicated that there was a massive cover-up, but I had never heard it directly from someone sitting in the conference room of the U.S. attorney that they were going to engage in a cover-up. Called John Kerry's staff, they arranged to privately come down and debrief him, and he met with them and agreed to testify. Leon Kellner continues to deny he was ever told by anyone to slow down his investigation, nor does he say he ever told anyone else to do so. However, congressional sources tell Eyewitness News, independent counsel Walsh has a sworn statement from an assistant U.S. attorney who overheard Kellner tell Feldman to slow down the case. David Lee Wan subsequently lost his entire career just flushed by those tipping me off that there was a cover-up going on right in front of him. He was maligned, persecuted, and drummed out. And soon, it seemed like the obstruction was coming directly from the Attorney General, the top law enforcement official in the United States. The controversy surrounding Feldman's investigation involves this May 1986 revised memo. The original version contained information that Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, his assistant Rob Owen, and American rancher John Hull were involved in the Contra Supply Network. The revised memo, written shortly after a visit by U.S. Attorney General Ed Meese with Feldman's boss Leon Kellner in Miami, left out that information. This is Jack Blum, the experienced D.C. lawyer on the Kerry investigation. Uh, there were other situations where I was told uh, that there were assistants who were working on cases and the cases had been uh, uh, shut down, in effect, because uh, of the connections with the Contra War. When we tried to get those people to talk, they said they'd been told flat out that if they told us anything in an on-the-record way, that their careers at the Justice Department and after would be ruined. Then, the long-delayed sentencing is set for Jesus Garcia, Mattis's client who first told him about the gun-running operation and who's been convicted on a weapons charge. Jesus is sentenced to an additional three years in prison. There is no mitigation in his case for the evidence he gave to the FBI or the Miami DA. Again, the vindictiveness of the U.S. Attorney's Office, the pettiness to not acknowledge, even belatedly, that he had contributed to unveiling a secret illegal war. On top of that, the Kerry investigation loses two key witnesses. Remember the mercenaries that Mattis visited in the Costa Rican prison? Well, one made a deal with the State Department and dropped out of the investigation, and the other came to a suspicious end. Alleged gun runner Stephen Carr, Carr, who reportedly was to testify on armed shipments before a grand jury, died of a drug overdose this week. Garcia contends it was a setup. This is Jack Terrell, a.k.a. Colonel Flacco, the Alabama mercenary turned Contra whistleblower. I was leaking relevant information to the press and switchboarding facts so that the whole picture could be painted of a back-channel shadow government in control of foreign policy under the direction of Oliver North, but known to, believe me, known to Ronald Reagan and George Bush very much, they called the shots. So that's what caused the FBI to start wiretapping him, which caused them to listen into our communication. So I would be talking to him and I would hear the ambiance in the phone change. And I'd say, uh, I'm not paranoid, 
But I think you guys are listening. Let me tell you, MFers, you better stop listening to a Senate investigation because when we get to the bottom of this, you're going to be the ones going to jail, not us. And in fact, when there was a later investigation of Iran-Contra, we found out for sure that there had been authorized investigation of Colonel Flacco generated by North through somebody working with the Enterprise, who formerly been at the CIA, a guy named Glenn Robinette. And I was introduced to a man by the name of Glenn Robinette, who I was told at the time was an attorney that was representing motion picture producers and, and book people. And that, boy, my story was really great. And they'd like to know more about me and and uh, were interested in helping me. They knew I was down and, out, down and out and broke, which was true. So Robinette, I found out, was an agent, former CIA agent that was working for General Richard Secord and Oliver North uh, trying to find ways to shut me up because I, I was giving out too much information too fast to too many people and they were trying to stop it. Robinette will eventually testify about his work investigating people on behalf of Richard Secord. Well, he would give me the name of individuals who he had learned were making allegations. What is the basis for them saying it and what are, where do they fit in this picture and who are they? Did you, did you use the informal term that uh, wanted you to find out any dirt about them or that you were trying to find out any dirt about them if you could? Well, I used derogatory, but uh, dirt is... The, um, did you sometimes um, pay compensation for information about people? Yes, sir. So they were very much interested in shutting me up, getting me out of the country, doing something with me. So first I was, uh, was offered the possibility of opening up a helicopter service in Costa Rica uh, to get me out of the country. And then when that didn't fly, they decided that something more drastic had to be done. In the summer, when Colonel Flacco become somewhat known, lo and behold, he gets picked off the street in Washington, D.C and held incommunicado for three days by the FBI and the Secret Service because he was labeled a terrorist threat by who? White House's Oliver North. I was called by the FBI. They said, we'd like to talk to you today down at the Washington field office. Fine. I walked into a room full of Secret Service agents and FBI agents, and they informed me that they had been informed that I was going to assassinate the President of the United States. And I like to went through the floor. I said, you've got to be kidding. I said, I might have done a lot of crazy things and, and been a strange person in this town. And I said, but regardless of how much I oppose a policy of my country, I would never kill my president. And they said, well, you take a polygraph to back this up. And I said, yeah, right now. So they literally put me in a car full of agents, took me to the Secret Service headquarters downtown, three stories underground. And for two days, I was polygraphed. They asked me questions like, uh, do you agree with the president's policy in Central America? Have you ever been in the Nicaraguan embassy? Questions along this line, and I'm thinking, what is this? And, and I'm waiting, you know, are you going to kill the president of the United States? They said, have you ever threatened a government official? And you're thinking, you IRS, you know, what? Uh, a park ranger? And that was it. And I was astonished, you know, that here I am being drugged down for two days, accusing me of going to assassinate the president of the United States. And never asked me if I was going to do it. Well, it turns out two years later, we find out that all he says is there's somebody who's a threat to the president. Meaning, 
Colonel Flacco was a threat to the president, which he was, but not a, that kind of threat. The threat was that he had information about Iran-Contra. The threat was political in nature, not physical. And it was a stunt by Ali and his buddies. That uh, the so-called threat against the president North uh, and the FBI claimed they couldn't say where it came from because it was some classified deal. Which, as it turned out, the classified deal was Oliver North calling Glenn Robinette out of a birthday party and bringing him to the basement of the White House and saying, you know, go to the FBI and tell them, you know, Terrell is going to whack the president. But they had a collaborator at the FBI, the executive assistant director by the name of Oliver Buck Ravel, who we had documents and a memo written that night by Oliver Ravel as to this threat that I was. When Glenn Robinette, the guy who was looking into Terrell for Secord and North, testified, he was asked about Buck Ravel, but that question was apparently off the table after his lawyer objected. Tell us the purpose for which his name appears on your calendar. Mr. Chairman, we're faced with the same situation. Um, I really cannot allow my, my client to answer this question, to go into this line of questioning in open session for reasons that I've explained to Mr. Barbadero. And also, we got a hold of a memo put together by Oliver North for John Poindexter and was initialed by Ronald Reagan that called me a terrorist threat and that I was a threat to, uh, uh, well, it, the essence was I was a secret agent working for a foreign government and I, I was a, an anti-Contra uh, type uh, sympathizer in Washington trying to bring down their foreign policy. So again, people say, well, Ronald Reagan didn't know what was going on, but I have the document with his initials on it. And as Mattis keeps meeting people through Jorge Morales, the drug smuggler and speedboat champion, the story seems to get more complicated. He introduced me to the gentleman called the Merchant of Death, Sarkis Sarkanofen, who was supplying, uh, was he supplying the Iranians, the Iraqis, or all sides of the wars in the Mideast? But again, there were colorful characters in the Miami federal prison. Sarkis Sorganalian was an arms dealer supplying the Iraq side of the Iran-Iraq war. Now, this might seem like a sidebar, but it's going to be important. At the time, Iran was America's top enemy after the Soviet Union, so we're helping to supply arms to Iran's enemy, Iraq, and its leader, Saddam Hussein. The Iran-Iraq war was bloody, costly, and dragged on from 1980 to 1988. Sorganalian originally sells weapons to Iraq with the approval of the CIA. But then, in 1985, he was arrested and convicted of selling Iraq unapproved weapons. In this interview, which Sorganalian did before his arrest, he's asked what country was violating America's embargo on selling arms to Iran, Iraq's opposition. Well, it's very clear that only people that do have that technology that will have those birds flying in the air is Israel. The U.S. has banned all arms sales to the Khomeini government and asked its allies to do the same. But CNN has learned that the United States looks the other way when it comes to Israel supplying Iran. Soganalian says that you can't lay all the blame on Israel. But again, you know, you turn around, you find out they have full support of the USA. Now, in many ways, the CIA's relationship with Iran mirrors its relationship with Central America. In 1953, the agency takes part in a coup that overthrows a democratically elected leader after he threatens to dislodge British oil interests in the country. 
Then, the CIA reinstates the Shah. Iran, 1953. The CIA mounted its first major covert operation to overthrow a foreign government. The target was the Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh. But in 1979, after years of dictatorial rule, the Shah is driven out and replaced by a fundamentalist Muslim cleric, Ayatollah Khomeini. The country immediately becomes an American adversary. This is Gary Sick, an aide to then-President Jimmy Carter. The Iranian Revolution was a major intelligence failure on the part of the United States. We quit looking uh, at the opposition uh, in Iran and, in effect, ended up being very badly prepared for what came along. Soon after his exile, the Shah makes plans to go to America for cancer treatment. Rumors fly through Iran that the CIA is going to reinstall him, and Iranians overrun the American embassy and take 52 American diplomats and citizens hostage. America then enacted a strict arms embargo against Iran, outlawing the sale of weapons to the country. Attempts to secure the release of the embassy hostages dogged Carter's administration, and a failed rescue attempt was a public disaster. As our team was withdrawing after my order to do so, two of our American aircraft collided on the ground following a refueling operation in a remote desert location in Iran. But to my deep regret, eight of the crewmen of the two aircraft which collided were killed. During the presidential campaign, Reagan made a big issue of Carter's inability to free the hostages. Do you really think Iranian terrorists would have taken Americans hostage if Ronald Reagan were president? Isn't it about time America had a president whose judgment we can trust? Carter eventually secured the release of the hostages, but they weren't freed until after the presidential election, which Carter lost. The release would coincide with Ronald Reagan's inauguration in 1981. Starting in 1982, American hostages started getting captured in Lebanon. This was an embarrassment for the Reagan administration as they'd made such a public outcry over Carter's hostage crisis. Then, in 1983, the U.S. Marine barracks in Lebanon were bombed in what proved to be a massive intelligence and public relations failure for Ronald Reagan and his CIA director, William Casey. Reagan's hostage crisis drags on longer than Jimmy Carter's. Eventually, though, the hostages are freed, but questions swirl about how their release was secured. Then, in October of 1986, Sandinistas shoot down an American supply plane over Nicaragua, and all hell breaks loose. As I told people, history will be, you know, all the proof that I need. And when Eugene Hassenfuss uh, survived the shootdown of a supply plane flown out of Villapango Air Force Base, then again, a big splash on the front page. Aboard the plane was Eugene Hassenfuss, who was captured by the Nicaraguan government, and who told them he thought he was working for the CIA. So when Hassenfuss was brought out, then the Sandinistas for the first time had real tangible proof. The U.S. government is doing it to us. We've got a plane that shot down. Eugene Hasenfuss was just one of a number of veterans from Laos who answered the call in Central America. When his plane was shot down over Nicaragua in October 1986, an Air America handbook turned up in the wreckage. But the White House disavowed Hasenfuss, claiming no U.S. government agency or personnel had anything to do with him or the Contra resupply mission he was part of. And they also capture all of the materials that he had physically in the plane, the wreckage of the plane, as if he had a return address 
Langley. The official story now appears to be unraveling. Just this week, the Washington Post reported that the CIA has relieved its station chief in Costa Rica. But with Congress and now a special prosecutor investigating, it may be only a matter of time before the full story is known. And so the United States government had to start distancing itself from this thing. It was the public spectacle. When that plane hit the ground and there was documents discovered within days, I had them in my hands in Washington delivered by a mysterious source. Right after I got the documents, they stopped giving them to people. They slammed the door at the CAB. But reading these documents, I was able to put together the pattern of how air flights were operating between uh, the U.S., Cuba, Nicaragua, Angola, Colombia. I mean, some strange, strange places that uh, CIA proprietary aircraft were making flights. And in fact, I learned that they were supplying both sides of the, w the war in Angola. Then, in November of 1986, less than a month after the Hassenfuss shootdown, a Lebanese magazine releases an article claiming the Reagan administration sold missiles to Iran so that Iran would pressure Lebanon to release American hostages and end Reagan's hostage crisis. And it claimed that Israel was used as an intermediary for the sale. On November 3rd, 1986, in a magazine in Lebanon, the United States had defied its own embargo on arms to Iran. Ronald Reagan was offering weapons to the Ayatollah Khomeini in return for the release of American hostages. But the administration denies it. A charge has been made that the United States has shipped weapons to Iran as ransom payment for the release of American hostages in Lebanon. That the United States undercut its allies and secretly violated American policy against trafficking with terrorists. Those charges are utterly false. So, immediately thereafter, the cover-up escalated. The cover-up escalated from the White House and from the Republicans. In fact, there was the Tower Commission that we're going to look into all of this. We're going to look into the Iranian aspect of this, not just the war in Nicaragua. And so we start seeing a lot of activity in Washington, the majority of it people trying to cover their asses. Elements of the White House were scurrying, running for cover, hiring criminal defense lawyers, and up on Capitol Hill, the Republicans who had condoned and had been privy to the secret war had to cover their tracks. And then you've got Oliver North saying, well, no, it's not government money. This is donations. And uh, what Air Force? You know, what supply planes? Uh, everybody knew nothing about something, but they couldn't explain away Hassenfuss. They couldn't explain away a lot of things. And then Edwin Meese walks out in a briefing room at the White House and says, well, you know, we've been selling missiles to our arch enemy, the Ayatollah, but we've been doing it at a profit, and this profit is being sent to our good buddies, the Contras. Okay, so this is important. At the time, Edwin Meese is Reagan's attorney general. When news of the Hassenfuss flight and the Lebanese magazine story breaks, Meese goes before the cameras and confesses that, indeed, profits from the sales of missiles to Iran had been used to fund the Contras. Certain monies which were received in the transaction between representatives of Israel and representatives of Iran were uh, taken and made available 
to the forces in Central America which are opposing the Sandinista government there. After the Hassenfuss flight goes down, information starts coming out, much of it through Terrell, that different countries are funding the Contras on America's behalf. The Sultan of Brunei gave $10 million. There was funding from Saudi Arabia and South Korea. There was funding from narcotics trafficking. There were some small amounts for private donors, but I think those were the main sources. But Iran is different. And the fact that profits from the sales of U.S. government-owned missiles were used without the approval of Congress brought both scandals together in what appeared to be a serious crime. So this is where we get to the Iran side of what's often called the Iran-Contra scandal. Usually, this is where I would tell you the story of Oliver North meeting with an arms dealer in a bathroom and securing an agreement whereby Iran would pressure the Lebanese to release the hostages. In return, the Americans would sell missiles to the Iranians and the proceeds would go to fund the Contras. But there's a problem. So the Contra side of this thing is a large operation that requires the involvement of literally thousands of people operating in multiple countries. For the Iranian side of this, the deals are all done by a handful of people who spent years lying about and covering up their involvement. Maybe we can look past that or, or look past the fact that when these guys got caught, the first thing they did was shred documents. What we probably shouldn't look past, though, is that their final cover story is impossible. So every American on the Iran side of the operation claimed that they didn't start selling missiles to Iran until 1985 and that it was done in response to the hostage crisis. The problem is, there's documentation showing a shipment of arms to Iran as early as 1981, the same year Reagan entered office, and before he even had a hostage crisis. So, with that context, it's a little hard to take their story at face value, especially relating to the origins and motivations behind the operation. What we can say, though, is that the same secret CIA enterprise of Casey, North, and Secord being used to supply the Contras was also being used as an intermediary in the Iran operation. Secord, for example, would buy a missile from the CIA for 3.7 million and sell it to Iran for 10 million. By the time their operation was exposed, it's estimated the enterprise made a profit of about $15 million. So why would the president's attorney general confess that the White House's North and Secord-run enterprise used money from the Iranian side of their operation to help fund the Contra side? Well. It has been widely speculated that this was what's known as a limited hangout. According to former CIA Deputy Director Victor Marchetti, a limited hangout is, quote, a favorite and frequently used gimmick of the clandestine professionals. When their veil of secrecy is shredded and they can no longer rely on a phony cover story to misinform the public, they resort to admitting, sometimes even volunteering, some of the truth while still managing to withhold the key and damaging facts in the case. The public, however, is usually so intrigued by the new information that it never thinks to pursue the matter further, unquote. And so, by admitting to a serious crime that could not be tied to the president, the administration distracted from other serious crimes that could be tied to the president. And if it's true that this release was a limited hangout, then it was a successful one. To this day, when people talk about the Iran-Contra scandal, they generally aren't speaking about an illegal war, arms embargoes, drug running, or even the broader enterprise operation. They are simply talking about a question as to whether Reagan had been briefed about one of the many illegal ways one of his illegal off-the-books operations was being funded. Reagan would have been part of the loop. Was he actively engaged or aware of every single criminal activity? No. There wouldn't be enough hours in the day 
to brief the president on all of the criminality that was going on by narrow focusing. That absolutely pulled the entire inquiry away from the United States government, committed itself to an illegal war, and sanctioned cocaine smuggling along with it, along with the illegal arms shipments, to name a few little illegalities. The reality and the narrative of what Iran-Contra was going to be was formed early on by Republican spin masters. The Iran-Contra hearings stretched out over a series of months. Remember, the Senate was controlled by the Republicans. The Republicans created the narrative and they owned it. John Kerry was pushed aside. The man who knew too much. They didn't want somebody with a perceived agenda um, to be involved, junior senator, anyway. Um, they wanted people who, who were neutral, right? So it's okay to have Dick Cheney on, but it's not okay to have Kerry on. And the cocaine smuggling could not be part of the narrative, nor could the squandering of U.S. tax dollars going into the pockets of traffickers. So all of that had to be squeezed off the stage. So you needed to refocus. There had to be a new narrative. And that convoluted narrative was a hapless president is rescued by Oliver North, Marine hero who had selflessly tried to support the starving Contras, the selfless man who took his time on his weekends, who is using all his resources to drum up support for the Contras because the U.S. Congress, dominated by those liberal Democrats, had cut off war funding. And everything comes back to him. I participated in the preparation of documents for the Congress that were erroneous, misleading, evasive, and wrong. I misled the Congress. I missed- At that meeting. At that meeting. Face to face. Face to face. You made false statements to them about your activities in support of the Contras. I did. So that bravado that, that pushed back so aggressively against the senators, they were intimidated by him. How dare you say I violate the law? I'm a Marine. I'm the tip of the spear. I am there for this country. So if you were listening to the hearings, Oliver North and General Secord and a couple others managed to get some missiles together and they give them to Iran. And then they helped the Contras out with a little bit of money from the Saudis. I saw that idea of using the Ayatollah Khomeini's money to support the Nicaraguan freedom fighters as a good one. I still do. I don't think it was wrong. I think it was a neat idea. And I came back and I advocated that and we did it. Nothing in terms of how you run a war out of the basement of the White House. Throughout the hearings, the highest ranking person to admit guilt was the president's national security advisor, John Poindexter. What was the reason to withhold information from Congress when they inquired about it? I simply didn't want any outside interference. Now, the outside interference you're talking about was 
Congress. And I take it the reason they were inquiring was precisely so that they could fulfill with information their constitutional function to pass legislation one way or the other. Isn't that true? Uh, yes, I suppose that's true. And that you regarded as outside interference. And he claimed that he had kept information about the transferred funds from the president. He had been very adamant at the time that he says, look, I don't want to pull out our support for the Contras for any reason. This, this would be an unacceptable option. Isn't there something that I could do unilaterally? I made a very deliberate decision not to ask the president so that I could insulate him from the decision and provide some future deniability for the president if it ever leaked out. He even took a phrase popularized by Harry Truman to suggest that the president is responsible for everything that happens in his administration and completely turned it on its head. You know, the buck stops here with me. I made the decision. I, th I felt that I had the authority to do it. I thought it was a good idea. I was convinced that the president would, in the end, think it was a good idea. But the buck didn't stop with him. It went through the whole government. And of course, by Poindexter saying it was him and him alone, he left out the attorney general. He left out the U.S. attorney. He left out elements of the CIA. He left out the State Department. And he left out the politicians on Capitol Hill that were all part and parcel of the conspiracy. This is Jonathan Weiner, a member of Kerry's investigation. So truth was turned on its head. There was a cover-up, which is that people in the United States government knew about and accepted the idea that people could engage in drug trafficking in the United States as part of the Contra war to, to raise money for it. And other people in the U.S. government working with the people who engaged in the traffic and turning a blind eye because it was all for the cause. Some of them, until the very end, denied the truth. Dick Cheney, for example, when he was on the Iran-Contra committee, wrote a blistering minority report saying, the White House has every right to do it if it wants to, and anyway, nothing happened. I think they knew it. Well, Reagan admitted that as much as he hated it, he had approved it. He said, you know, I don't feel like I really did, but I kind of sort of did. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. Years after the Iran-Contra hearings, Reagan would be asked under oath for the first time about his actions relating to the country supplying the Contras, and at one point, he's asked about soliciting a country to provide funds for the Contras. I know that, uh, that my policy was not to, uh, to involve others in this. I mean, I wanted them involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. But questions still linger about the source of all that money. I've been spending some time uh, looking at the numbers here of the amount of aid that the Contras were getting at various times. And I come to the conclusion that we're missing something. There's got to be some other source of funds that we, meaning we, meaning this uh, committee has not yet uncovered. And the simplest explanation was 
The Congress has shut down the CIA and the formal parts of the U.S. government from funding the Contras. So this is being funded off the books by drugs. It went from complete denial to covering up the drug part and trying to say it was the North Sea Court enterprise and nobody else was involved. So they moved to protect people associated with the vice president's office. Well, because he's going to run for president. So all the effort was there. And well, <laughs> the, the problem here is that uh, if you have a swashbuckling buccaneer who has it in his head what the idea of the national interest is, and he goes off and swashes and buckles, if you will, uh, what you've done is you've given up on democracy. Uh, the whole idea of the way our government works is no individual may ever go off into the night and say, I feel like doing this, I'm going to do it. Uh, everybody, from the president up and down, is sworn to uphold the law. After all, that's why we call it an administration. And uh, they are subject to political checks and balances. What we had here were a group of people who said, we're not interested in that. We really don't care about the Constitution. We figured out what the national interest is. And by God, if there's nobody else with the courage to go out and do it our way, we're going to do it and the devil take them. Once the scandal blows up onto the front page of America's newspapers is how do you account for what people have been saying in South Florida? And you can't. So the Justice Department has to all of a sudden quickly pivot, and then they had to put on a good face. What they said was that, oh, of course, we were trying to investigate this all along. U.S. Attorney Leon Kellner is leading a grand jury investigation into at least some of the charges. What's at issue here is violation of U.S. law, namely the Neutrality Act. You can't organize a private military expedition from this country to attack a country that we are at peace with. U.S. Attorney Leon Kellner will decide if the arms shipments took place and any laws were broken. And I really can't discuss anything further because it is a current investigation. The same people that were willing to cover it up in the first place were out for retribution. So the very same Justice Department that said none of this ever happened, the very same Justice Department that overtly shut down the investigation in South Florida turned around and indicted the whistleblowers. Colonel Flacco called me and said, John, they're about to indict me. And frankly, I found it incredible. How could the Justice Department turn around and in good faith indict Colonel Flacco for invading a country, and in fact, everyone in the United States government was doing it. So the very organizers of the entire operation, John Hull, Oliver North, Rob Owen, somehow the U.S. attorney forgot their names. Did Colonel Flacco on his own invade Nicaragua? And if you read the indictment of Colonel Flacco, that's exactly what the government alleged. And I was stuck with, what do you do when you leave people behind? And I, at a very deep level, felt that's not the way we do things. So I told Colonel Flacco I would represent him 
but I didn't know how because I've been working for the federal government. But I said, I will do it if you can't find a lawyer. Now, Mattis is still a public defender. If he's going to represent Jack Terrell, a.k.a. Colonel Flacco, he would have to resign from that position and enter private practice. Not a single lawyer in any liberal group, any progressive group, not a single lawyer in the United States offered to help him. So I then told my wife I had resigned, and then that next Tuesday, early the next week, I told Flacco I would meet him at court, and we walked into the courtroom, and he announced, you know, he was surrendering, and the judge said, well, who's your lawyer? And he pointed at the back of the courtroom, well, John Mattis is my lawyer. And I heard a, what? And it was the original prosecutor from Jesus Garcia that could have brought down John Hull, could have brought down Rob Owen, but instead did none of that. Instead just wanted to persecute the whistleblower. And I was not part of his game. And he started shouting, judge, he can't represent that man. It's a conflict of interest. And he started getting red. And the judge calmly said, Mr. Mattis, can you represent him? And I said, yes, I'm in private practice as of five o'clock Friday. And, and she goes, fine, we're done here. The prosecutor just was speechless. And I walked out and walked up to the cameras and said, he's a whistleblower, he's a foot soldier. And to suggest that he was responsible for the invasion of Nicaragua is laughable on its face. And more importantly, the United States was never at peace with Nicaragua, and I intend to put the United States on trial. And so that was the start of my work defending Jack Terrell, Colonel Flacco, and my prosecution of the United States government for war in Nicaragua. This has been Jack Bryan. And I'm John Cryer. Join us next week for the penultimate episode of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. We permitted narcotics. I mean, we were complicitous as a country in narcotics traffic at the same time as we're spending countless dollars in this country to try to get rid of this problem. It's mind-boggling. And there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. If you want to listen to the next episode ad-free right now, go to lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. Sign up and hear bonus episodes and extra content where we do deeper dives into the story. Subscribe now. Lawyers, Guns, and Money is a Discount Sushi and Bunker Crew Media production in association with MSW Media. It was produced by John Cryer and Jack Bryan. It was written and edited by Jack Bryan. Special thanks to Dennis Bernstein for allowing us to use his interview with Jack Terrell. Special thanks also to Ian Masters for allowing us to use his interview with Jack Blum. Copyright 2023. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again on the next episode of Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Enjoy.